Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Jim Lehrer, who co-anchored the McNeil Lehrer News Hour on PBS from 1975 to 1995 and was the sole anchor until his retirement in 2009, died at the age of 85 on January 23, 2020. Along the way, he also hosted various presidential debates and at the time of his retirement was one of the most respected journalists in America. He was also a novelist and a playwright with 20 novels, three memoirs, and three plays to his credit. On October 19, 1998, at the height of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal and before the impeachment trial, Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to sit down with Jim Lehrer while he was on tour for his novel, Purple Dots. Obviously, most of the interview was devoted to the state of journalism and to the state of America at that time. Jim Lehrer, this is, uh, what, your your 10th, 12th novel, right? 11th novel. 11th novel. 13th book, 11th novel. And it deals with politics in Washington. It's a little difficult to go into it portions of in too much depth because it it really relies on surprise Mm -hmm. each step of the way. But let me ask you this. Was there a particular incident that Purple Dots was based on? No. It it involves a confirmation hearing, in this case of a a number two person of the CIA who's been nominated to be head of the CIA. I've covered uh, a lot of confirmation hearings, but not one specifically like this, that the one that I made up Politics plays a big role, and in fact, as we learn in this story, the confirmation of this CIA director may in fact have nothing to do with the CIA, this director, or much of anything else. How common is that? It's a horse trade. How common is, common is that in Washington? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fairly common. It's not necessarily an evil thing. Everybody has to make their own judgment. If, remember that the people who are in Washington are sent there by people in California and people in Texas and people from whatever, and they go there to represent whatever interests they think are the interests of of the folks they represent. And in this case, there's a United States senator uh, who's got a water problem in his state. And in order to solve that water problem, he needs to do something involving the nomination of this man to to head the CIA, and somebody else has got a problem with that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I try to draw it in a way that folks can make their own choices as to, number one, whether or not this is an evil process. Number two, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? I tried to make it as as, uh, ambiguous as possible. One of the characters in the book, although he doesn't actually appear on stage, is Senator Oliver North, a fascinating, clearly fictitious character. Would you talk about him a little, please? Well, Richard, I did that just to keep, make sure that people were awake. Uh, <laughs> I wanted somebody oh, to do just what you have just done. Okay. Um, Senator Oliver North, didn't he lose that election? That is truly uh, 
gamesmanship on my part. Don't read too much into that. Well, but but there was an incident uh, involving Ollie North, a, a statement that I heard him make, and in fact, it may have been in response to a question that you asked on television a couple of years ago, or maybe hmm. maybe it was a different questioner because it was the answer that stuck in my mind. Uh, the issue was people getting off from crimes based on technicalities, uh, where, where there was no question that the accused had done the act. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, was the case with Ollie North. And his response was, that's all we have. That's all that the law is. It's just a pack of technicalities. I don't remember his saying that, but the, the another way of putting it, a different way of putting it is that all we have as a democracy is our process. And that there are those who would argue that when a guilty person, a person guilty of a crime, is allowed to go free uh, because of a technicality, that shows that, that we have our priorities right in this country, that due process, that you have to follow certain rules in order to send a person to prison. That is what protects us because we are a nation of laws, not of men. And, uh, and there are some people, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I, as you said that, Richard, I realize now that I vaguely remember North saying that, but there are many who have said that ahead of him in different, very different contexts. What does it say about our country that a man like Oliver North can come close to being elected senator? You just have to remember he didn't get elected. I will leave that to uh, the pundits and the people of Virginia. Uh, speaking about pundits and moving a little bit away from Purple Dots and we'll come back mm -hmm. to it, the entire Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton scandal is being driven by pundits. What's your opinion about them and what they're doing and what kind of effect do you think they're having on uh, the state of American politics? I agree with something that Russell Baker wrote recently in the New York Times that some elements of the Washington press corps have been in a state of road rage, to use his term, and that we may look back upon this time as uh, the great 1998 meltdown of the American press or the Washington press corps. I don't think, though, that what it's doing to American democracy, I don't know, but I, I'm not, that is a pundit in question, but I'm qualified to talk about what it's doing to American journalism. I think that it is, uh, it's, it has pushed us further down the slippery slope of credibility. We are already, we meaning the big we, those who practice journalism for a living, are already down there in the public esteem polls with the lawyers, the Congress, Linda Tripp, and the child pornographers. <laughs> and all this has done is put us even further down there. And the pundits, to be specific about it, is that I feel strongly about this issue, um, where I think the main, uh, the, the main cause I started to use the word sin, and I don't, I, I, I don't want to use that word. But the main cause in terms of what the pundits have done on, in the Lewinsky story is that they've confused the American people professionally, in my opinion. I come from the old school of journalism where there are three major things in serious journalism. Here's the story. Here's what it means. Now, here's the, an, the analysis of it. And the analyzers were well-credentialed, well-labeled folks. And then you had the opinion journalists, 
people who write columns, commentators, write editorials and all of that. And the reporting was done by straight reporters. These were three separate functions. The lines were already blurring before the Lewinsky matter came upon the scene. But I think what the Lewinsky matter has done is blurred them even further. I think the public is very confused about all of this when they see a a so-called straight news reporter on a nightly newscast giving the news on Monday and then the following Sunday going on a television program and giving their opinion about it. I just think that is uh, is hurting our credibility, and uh, I don't allow it on our program. I know I'm a dinosaur, but uh, so be it. Well, to what extent is it possible to separate? I, I know this goes. This is a longstanding question in journalism. Long predates television journalism, or or any broadcast for that matter. How does one maintain that cold eye of reporting fact and keep one's one's heart and one's guts from getting involved? It's not hard at all if you are, in fact, trained to do that and if you understand your function properly. I believe that the readers and the viewers and the listeners of America deserve step one of all information. In other words, what happened? Just tell me, please, what it is that happened. What the two cars came together at an intersection and they crashed and two people died. All right. Then come along, you can tell me, well, now why did it happen? Well, one of them was slipping and sliding, or one of them, one of the drivers was drunk. Okay. Then come along and tell me that's an outrage. This person, the law should be changed, you know, so forth and so on. But begin with step one. And if you f- see that as your function, which I do in my particular job, then uh, I don't have any problems with it. Uh, and uh, I think the other two, uh, other two steps, by the way, are very legitimate functions of journalism. I mean, I think journalism should have strong opinions on there. I mean, I think uh, uh, editorials should be in newspapers, should take, take, take strong stands, et cetera. And I think the analysis should go into all of this sort of thing. But I just think they're three uh, separate things. And if that is your function, then I don't have any problems interviewing somebody and um, uh, disagreeing maybe with everything they're saying if I really question myself about it. Because my job is to let that person be heard in a way that the audience can make those kinds of judgments. And uh, I don't have any problems at all. There's no problem being fair either. I mean, it's objectivity is the one, is the question that gets people. Objectivity. But objectivity is difficult, but fairness never is. What about the fact that you might have 10 auto crashes, but on your show, you've only got room for three or four? So somewhere along the line, someone must make the choice. Absolutely. That is uh, a part of the contract that people like me make with our listeners or uh, editors of newspapers make with their, with their readers or uh, listeners of radio programs are the same. I'm a gatekeeper. I go through so many stories a day. And when I say I, I mean I mean the the big I, I uh, those who, for instance, who do the news hour, we go through the news together, and we decide. Look, this story uh, is is not as important that story, et cetera. That is a judgment call. There's no question about it. But I don't see that as as it it it, it is a manifestation of my opinion in terms of what I think is more important, and that's extremely extremely important. You're right about that. But it's not telling people what to uh, what to think about a story. But uh, oh yeah, I mean you are 
uh, as Hemingway said in fiction, um, it's what you throw away uh, that is important. Well, it's the same thing in journalism. You can only get so many stories in that newscast, so many stories in that newspaper, and you got to throw something away. And and your 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 judgment is uh, is on the line every day if it's daily journalism. To some degree, however, that judgment is not in a vacuum. It's in the context of all of the other news reports. So if all of these pundits are operating and pushing and pushing and pushing, to some degree, for you, I know that in the uh, commercial media, there might be commercial considerations as well, you know, what will get the higher ratings. But for you, you're still somewhat driven by what others are doing. You're absolutely right. Uh, and it's the hardest thing of all. I mean, and this Lewinsky thing has brought all of these things into vivid color <laughs> in ways that I have never seen. For instance, there are many, many for instances, but the one that, that immediately leaps to mind is the blue dress. <laughs> right? We decided that was not news. That was not, that was, it was a source thing. We didn't even know the thing, for sure the thing existed. We were not going to report on it, report about it. We were not going to discuss it on our program. Then so many people talked about it, became such a big deal, and I maintained that to the very end until Kenneth Starr's report came out. And it was it was when it would be was a, an official part of the official report of the official independent council, and there was even a photograph in that 440 pages of that uh, of that dress. Then it was a different issue. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it it there were there were times when the punditry was driving. Uh, the story, because it was talked about, for us not to mention some of these things made us look like we had our heads head in the sand or we were trying to be, you know, protect the president, which we were accused of all the time. And it was a very difficult situation uh, from, from – it's been a tough eight months for us. Dick Lupoff. We are living in an era, especially in the context of television news, where there's more of it than ever. I mean, there's CNN going 24 hours a day, and there's Fox, which is, is or is not a rival, and there's CNBC and so forth. In a sense, people have so much information that they maybe don't know what to do with it. Is, is there any, any way out of that box? Richard, what I think is going to happen is that we're going to come up with a, something new is going to have to be invented. And it's going to be a new set of gatekeepers. The idea that any normal human being going about his or her normal life every day has time to watch and listen and gather all this information uh, uh, is ridiculous. Uh, they may not want to read a newspaper or watch a newscast in the traditional way. But we may be headed toward a situation where the you two Richards go to your computer and uh, you essentially through a service that's provided, and let's say you want, uh, you're interested in the any editorial that appears tomorrow in the Los Angeles Times about Lewinsky. You're interested in in the readings of say three stocks, only three stocks, because they only own three stocks. You're interested in in baseball scores, but only from the KOM League, Class D, you know, in, in Kansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri. And, and, and so you're, and, and, you, but you, and you want sound, you're interested in what the president said at the news conference, and you want the whole thing. And you want to be able to see him, too. 
and uh, or whatever it is, and you tailor made that, and you and you push on your computer, and you say, and I'd like it available with me to me at six thirty in the morning. The difficulty there, of course, is that when you do that, you miss out on everything else. That's right. That's right. And somewhere down the road, and the way things are moving so quickly, it could be, it could be, they may be working on it as we're talking. Uh, there's going to be a new layer that's going to be in there. Um, that will be a little bit like the old traditional editor, executive producer, people like me, uh, but it may be different. It may be slightly different. And rather than to edit from uh, the wire services and from just the things that are that 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 come uh, available just to that news organization, may edit from everything that's available based on the wants and the and the desires of of each individual. Something like that. I don't know what it is, but something like that's going to have to happen, Richard, because there's just too much out there. Let's get back to Purple Dots, Jim oh. Lehrer's new novel. There is almost as a background melody running throughout the book, reference after reference after reference to Aldridge Ames. And by coincidence, in today's newspaper, there's an article that none other than our friends, the Internal Revenue Service, are going after Mr. Ames for failing to pay income taxes on the money that the Soviet government paid him as a spy, which wonderful ironies involved in that. I love that story. <laughs> to what extent is Mr. Ames' shadow shaping the entire culture of the American intelligence community? Richard, that's a really good question. My my impression, based on uh, what uh, I don't have a lot of inside information about this, but uh, based on what I do know, both inside and outside, I'm interested in it. So I've read a lot about it and public public information as well. I think it's a huge shadow. That was that was a monumental event uh, within the intelligence community, be for a variety of reasons, just the sheer magnitude of what he did, but also that he got away with it so long. Pardon me. W yeah. Would you review very briefly for our listeners just what he did and how he got caught? For nine years, he sold, and he his he was an agent of the Central Intelligence Agency. His father had been one before him, and he was his he was one of those whose job it was to catch Soviet moles within the federal government, within the U.S. government and to keep tabs on Soviet spies. In other words, he had the, one of the most sensitive jobs in the world, and yet, it turns out, he had a serious drinking problem. He was known to be living in a, in a house that he probably couldn't afford and be driving an automobile that cost an awful lot of money, and nobody put these things together because the, the old boy, the good old boy warrior mentality. Everybody kind of protected themselves. One agent found him drunk in a, in a gutter in Rome, but he didn't tell anybody because he didn't want to get him in trouble. And he was going to meet a Soviet source. First of all, what he sold to the Soviet Union were the names of numerous people within the Soviet government who were, in fact, working for the United States. Many of these people were murdered. Um, those who weren't were ostracized or, or punished in other ways. So it was a serious breach. That would have been terrible under any circumstances. But why it still hangs as a cloud, Richard, is that it exposed the weakness in the system and that uh, there is an honor 
so-called honor code here that was uh, that was broken and that they had no mechanism in place uh, to monitor it properly and all that. At any rate, they, because of the Alder James thing, there are some who would say, Everybody's running scared over there, and they're not taking the risks that they should be taking in their operations. But I don't know enough to know. I did speak authoritatively about that. It appears, though, from what you're saying about Ultra James and what we know of Guy Burgess in the 50s, that the entire Western intelligence community in terms of the Cold War was compromised virtually from the word go. Not entirely. Uh, I think uh, I read all about the the, uh, the British spies, the Cambridge spies, and I found all that very fascinating. Some of it was compromised. Huge hunks of it were com- were, were were compromised. But I think it's a little stretch to say the whole thing was. The, the CIA did a disinformation thing. They kept saying, well, we don't really have anybody in there close in the, in the Kremlin. And they used to lament that all the time. And they used to talk about how compromised their thing was because they wanted the Soviets to believe that. Now, since it's all been all uh, since the end of the Cold War, it turns out we had a lot more people in there of higher rank than anybody ever dreamed possible. So I, I honestly don't know what the truth is. It, it also strikes me as very uh, strange that here was this intelligence community that was completely wrong about Vietnam. They were completely wrong about Iran. They had all of the men, all, manpower and woman power. They had all of the knowledge. They had the spy satellites. And yet, on, in a series of decisions, down the line, they seemed wrong. On Vietnam, uh, that's not the, not the case. The CIA was the first one, first branch of government who told uh, the Pentagon and the president, uh, this isn't working. And they're on record on that. Uh, the documents are very clear on that. Uh, now, as far as Iran, you got it absolutely right. There's a big dispute within the intelligence community about, because I've always believed that their biggest failure was in overestimating the power of the Soviet Union and uh, economically and politically and otherwise. And there are some in the, in the, who were around at that time said, no, that's not true, that, that we were, our reports were just ignored. Their point is always, all we are information gatherers and providers, we cannot act on. Vietnam, they would argue and they could show you documents where they said, you know, this, is, this, this little program is not working, this isn't working, this isn't working. And they, they, were, they were telling Lyndon Johnson just the opposite of what they were being told. Johnson was being told by the Pentagon and the CIA was being ignored. That at least is the CIA position and what I have read seems to uh, bear that out. Let's get back to purple dots. <laughs> yep. Uh, the purple dots themselves, let's, let's not give away what they are because that's, that's a, a little bell that rings in the middle of the book. But let me just ask you if they're real. That's classified, Richard. I can't talk about that. <laughs> All right. That no, makes... <laughs> no. Here, I will tell you, if you'll promise not to tell anybody. Okay? Not a soul. Okay. Don't On tell my anybody. Honor. Okay. Um, they are not real. However, if I were, say, in the San Francisco, Berkeley area, and I were to read a book called Purple Dots, and I were then to go to Washington, D.C. any time after that, if I were smart... I, even though this is in a book of fiction, I would look for purple dots on license plates. Okay. <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this. Um, you're clearly a gentleman of leisure. You, you just do five days a week, an hour-long 
TV news shows, one of the major TV news shows. How do you find time to write 13 books? Richard, I uh, had a heart attack 15 years ago. And when I was recovering from the heart attack, uh, I'd always written fiction. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Hemingway uh, school person. Uh, I went into journalism uh, and fiction writing at the same time. They were not the same thing. But I had took a, a hiatus from my, my fiction writing because of my day job and because I had a family and I wanted to have a personal life. I couldn't do all three things. So I was recovering from the heart attack. I decided I really had to get back to my fiction writing. And uh, in order to do that, I realized I had to quit doing some things that I didn't want to do. So I just made a list of all the things that I did in my life. And then there's, with the help of my doctor, because he's the one who suggested this, I went back through it and I eliminated all the things I didn't want to do. And once I did that, I decided I'm only going to do the things I want to do. So once I did that, I found I had plenty of time. And I just organized my time. I get up early in the morning. I exercise for an hour. I go to my office early before anybody else is there. I write for an hour every day. Then I, do, I take a nap every afternoon. It's a carryover from the heart attack. I still do that. That gives me energy in the afternoon, not only to do the program, but even again to write again when I get home if I want to. Uh, I'm, my, my, my wife is a novelist, so we speak the same emotional language. Uh, we understand all of that. Perhaps one of us is a little bit droopy over not getting a plot right or something. I don't have that burden to bear. It is a daily part of my life. I write every day. Uh, coming out here from Washington, I had a computer on the plane. I wrote for three hours, three out of the five and a half hours, working on a book. It's an exceptional day when I don't write rather than the other way around. What's the difference between journalism and fiction writing? Well, the, uh, the tools are the same. You use your fingers and you use your head. And essentially, the similarities are the thing that Hemingway talked about. I mean, you're using the English language. You're using words. And you're trying to arrange them in a way, when it's journalism, that, that transmits information. If it's, if it's uh, fiction, you're transmitting emotion and feelings and, and, and that sort of thing. However, beyond that, for me, I don't see my journalism, the function that I went into a moment ago. Journalism, is, for me, is not the way I express myself. I have a very clean function there. I don't when it, when somebody gets up from a, watching an interview of mine, and they say, "God, boy, great questions, Lara asked. God, Lara was really terrific tonight," and they can't remember what the person said that I was interviewing, then that I missed it. But when I write a novel, that's me. That's me. That's the way I express myself, and that's the big difference. You have a character, um, Marty Madigan, who's very ambitious, Republican. He doesn't seem to have any politics whatsoever. How true is that of those ambitious young men and women in Washington? It's very true, strangely enough. There are ideologues, obviously, uh, on the very far left and the very far right. Uh, but most of the people who come to Washington, I am continually surprised and delighted at the number of people who come to Washington just because they want to perform a public service. They care deeply about a lot of these things. They care about issues, some issues that you may not care about, but they care about them. And it's not necessarily politics in a straight ideological way. 
there are some people, hey, I want to be a United States senator. That's Marty's, Marty, Marty Madigan's. I want to be a United States senator. I want to be the right kind of United States. I want to deal seriously with the issues. I don't want to do petty politics and all that sort of thing. And but there are all different kinds of people. As uh, uh, Mark Shields, who's on our program uh, quite often, says that you've got to remember uh, Washington is where all the high school st- uh, student body presidents go. And uh, they're all very ambitious people there. And some of them stay in politics, some of them don't. It's a, it's a, it's a route to, uh, you can feel, even if you're a lowly aide for a senator or a house member or a cabinet officer or even in a journalism organization, if you're interested in government, if you're interested in politics, you can get a smell of it. You can have, you're, you can be close to the action. And you can feel like you – not that you are important, but that you're around things that are going on that are. Jim Lehrer, you followed Washington very closely because of your position at McNeil Lehrer NewsHour and then later just in your solo effort in the NewsHour. How corrupt is Washington, D.C. right now? Well, uh, corruption – corrupt is corrupt. Everybody has their own definition of corruption. There are some people who would define corruption along the lines of what we were talking about before. You're Senator A. I'm Senator B. You help me on my water problem. I help you on your CIA confirmation problem. That that's corruption. But out-and-out corruption – where you come to me, I'm a senator, you want a certain bill pu- uh, uh, passed, and you come and say, Senator uh, Wawa, I will, give, I will contribute $50,000 to your campaign, or here's $50,000 in cash if you will do my bidding. That kind of corruption is rare. That kind of government, that, that part of, of government is cleaner now than it ever has been before. There's still an awful lot of money involved in politics. And some people call the campaign finance system we have is legalized bribery. But I also know a tremendous number of people who serve in government who are forced to go out and raise money because if they don't have money, they can't run, and they have to ask for money. We're not influenced at all by whom uh, contributes their money. But I, I've been in Washington 25 years. I don't think it's any more corrupt now than that. I don't think it's. I don't think of. I don't think of Washington as corrupt. It's a word that I know is thrown around a lot, but that's not my. I, when I when I think of Washington, I don't think of corruption. I think of of of, of an occasional corrupt person, of an occasional corrupt system that needs to be corrected, but I don't think of the city and the operation. The whole the whole thing is corrupt. How dangerous do you feel? the Christian right is toward our civil liberties? That's a pundit kind of question that I will leave for others. That is a question for the judgment division of journalism that I'm not in. Let me rephrase that in a different way (laughs) because I understand why you want to stay away from that. When you make choices, if you're having two people from opposing viewpoints, a question comes up as to whether the climate allowing for more, say, radical right-wingers to appear on various news programs, whether that influences the overall climate of the country and, or radical leftists for that matter. And when you look at that, do you examine that and do you try to create a balance and have people who are not going to be too far extreme? That's the hardest job we have. Uh, You have an issue that we want to have a debate about or a discussion about. In order to have a debate, you have to have differences of opinion because I happen to believe that there are at least two sides to everything. 
But then how far from the midstream, the mainstream, do you go seeking that difference of opinion? It's something we talk about all the time. Uh, you'd say, oh, well, here's the issue. The only people who are opposed to that are from way here on the left. Or the only people who are really opposed to that are people way here on the right. For the sake of a debate, are we going to have those people on, even though they represent a very small percentage of thought about the issue or even of people? I think we've made mistakes both ways, uh, and we will continue to do that. I also believe that if an idea is a good idea and if it doesn't hurt for it to be tested, but it has to be tested in a responsible way, and sometimes we uh, – I'm talking about our program. I'm not talking about the whole world here. I don't watch every, the whole world. I don't have time. But I know in our case, uh, we, we, we wrestle with this question all the time. You've asked the right question, I will assure you, the one that goes to the heart of our daily operation. So we wrestle with it. Sometimes we get it right. Hopefully we get it right more than we get it wrong. Can you name any example where you have gotten it so right – or so wrong that you can look and go, there is the paradigm. Anything that involves choice, lifestyle, all those kinds of things, I think for the most part we're getting that right, more right than we used to. Uh, I can't think, I just can't, I'm not trying to play games with you, I just cannot think of a specific either way uh, because we're doing, so, we're doing better at it. I don't remember a time I mean, I know it's happened because I remember, but I tend to put those things out of my mind. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know I know there have been times when I got up uh, from the chair thinking, why in the world did we have that person on? Because we, we equated that position with this other position, even though I realize that's a judgment call. But uh, I, I, we're not in the shouting business. We're, in the, we're not in the heat business. We're in the light business. One other question in that regard. I've noticed on television, particularly in the past year or two, that the level of civility has declined and everyone is interrupting everyone else. Do you see that from your vantage point? In the programs that I watch, uh, yes, I do see that. I think civility is, uh, is in, a, in decline along with – and I think this is also another product of the, uh, of the Lewinsky matter. I don't – I'm not – I mean, not the main major product, and that may have happened even without the Lewinsky matter. We go overboard the other. We're accused of being too civil. To me, I say thank you very much. Uh, we're sitting here, uh, Jim Lehrer, Richard Walensky, and myself, Richard Lupoff. We're, we're going to tape about 45 to 50 minutes today in order to make a half-hour radio broadcast. This involves editing. Nobody's going to get censored. We edit mm -hmm. for continuity and to make it sound and make it a coherent, good show. To what extent do you edit the news hour, or, or do you just go out there on a tightrope and walk for 60 minutes? Every tape piece that we do, of course, is edited. I mean, a tape report. 90% uh, of our interviews are done live two time. I mean, they, there's no editing done at all. It's all tightrope. For me, that's the way to do it. McNeil said when we started our program nearly 25 years ago, he said, let's do it live. It makes the blood run. It makes everybody more alert. It means you, it takes a little more time. And uh, let's take our time and uh, let's do it live. I always prefer doing live television to uh, tape television. I think I'm better when it's live than, uh, than when it's tape. 
because I realize that I can't do it again. I can't stop the tape. I can't look out there and say, hey, sorry, uh, let me, uh, <laughs> let me uh, we're not quite ready yet, or, or uh, I'm gonna re- I want to ask that question differently. It also is so, it's such an exhilarating experience, Richard. I mean, to do a live interview, let's say it doesn't have to be with anybody famous, doesn't have to be with the president, doesn't have to be anything big. But to do, say, a, a live interview for 12 minutes about something that matters with somebody who's articulate and to really have a beginning, a middle, and an end and to end it and, f- and get up from the chair and say, hey, I really did that well uh, and it was all live is, a, is quite, quite an experience. Jim Lehrer, how long does it take to prepare for that 12-minute interview? Depends on the interview. I'm sure you all are the, come from the same school I do, which is the click school, click school of journalism. You know when, it, when the time has come to write the story, you know, or to broadcast it, or when you can sit down and do the interview. Sometimes two calls or a little bit of reading will do it. Sometimes 200 calls and a whole lot of reading, and you're still not quite ready. Sometimes you can get ready in 20 minutes. Sometimes it takes two or three hours or two or three days. For instance, in my case, if it's a continuing story, story that I've already been doing interviews on over a period of two or three weeks or months or something that I can sit down and get ready for it. But if it's a relatively new subject or something that I don't feel like I'm, that I feel good about. Look, preparation, as you all know, is, is so you feel comfortably for me. I won't speak for anyone else. For me, I prepare at a click level when I feel I am prepared to listen. In other words, I know enough to where I can sit and listen to what the person is saying and not be locked in to my questions that I have written. Question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. I mean, it's question, listen, then follow up, follow up, and follow up, and be able to understand the answers. And that's all preparation is for me. Are you still as passionate as a 20-year-old? You know, I feel that way. I mean, look, you know, spine, as I say in the book, you all have read it, Purple Dot, that being an intelligence agent is little boy work. Well, journalism is little boy, little girl work. I get as excited today as I did when I started uh, over 30 years ago. It is so much fun. I have been present for, for every major news development in the last nearly 40 years. And I've met every kind of person. There, there are no cliches. Somebody says, Oh, well, he's just a left-handed uh, billionaire, or he's just a homeless person, or he's a, he's a Russian this, or he's a whatever that. I've met just about every kind of person there is, and that's because I'm a journalist. Of any living person on this planet today whom you have never met, if you could get somebody into the studio, one person, who would it be? J.D. Salinger. Okay. <laughs> I could expand it and say through all of time, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> or, or, oh, thank if, you. or if there's one person. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> or if there's one person you wish you didn't interview. But I, you know, it's funny. Over oh, We've been doing this show for 20 years, and I can't think Have of one person. Have you been doing it for 20 years? Yeah. I can't think of one person that I'm, you know, there are a couple of really minor writers who disappeared like one day later, but... Uh, I can't think of one person I wouldn't have wanted to interview. This I know was number one on my list right now, and it's Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and I'll never get him. Well, you, I must say, I, we're obviously, we're now... I mean, I, I just want to do an outro in a second. What, what an answer, because I was expecting, of all people, I thought he was going to say, Kim Jong-il. 
I mean, talk about being not even close. I wasn't on the right planet. Uh, no, if you, for instance, you guys would understand this. Most people wouldn't. But when I somebody asked me about my f- most memorable interview or any of that sort of thing, it's never a politician. It's never a government, whatever. Yeah. It's always some obscure person. Interviewing politicians, political people, I thoroughly enjoy doing it. But they're not, I mean, I can barely remember their names, you know, by the time I got home. I mean, I, my wife has now told me, you know, go to a social event. And uh, shake hands with somebody and say, well, it's really a pleasure to meet you. And they say, well, I was just on your program two nights ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I go through four or five guests a night for 20-some years. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.